Let's turn together to Second Samuel chapter 4. <clears throat> now, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You have wanted to take someone to the movies, and uh, obviously you want them to take them to a movie of your choice. And you've arrived at the theater, you've sat down, and as the, the movie has begun, suddenly the realization dawns on you that this was in fact your choice and not your companion, spouse, girlfriend, sorry for being sexist, but that's the kind of scenario I have in mind. And as the opening part of the story unfolds, you realize with every second, every image, every action on the movie unfolds, you realize this person with you is not going to appreciate anything that is going to go on in this movie. Have you ever been in that scenario? Men, I'm asking you. No, no, because they know ahead of time not to go with you to those kinds of movies, don't they? And, uh, but I've been in that scenario, and of course in the first, in fact the most recent experience, in the first ten minutes or so, I was told it was time to leave. <coughs> And I'm going to have to wait until my sons come along and they can take me to see the movies that I want to see uh, unhindered by other uh, factors, <clears throat> which I, I, I won't elaborate on because my life will not be worth living later. <laughs> well, here you are. You've come to church this morning. Coming to church is a fairly safe place for you to come. Some of you have brought your children with you and you think this is great. And then we've read this story together in Second Samuel chapter 4 of murder most foul. It isn't an Agatha Christie story. It is a Bible story. And perhaps already you're thinking to yourself, will the pastor simply do the decent thing, announce the benediction now, and let us go home early? Well, of course he won't do that. There are two things to bear in mind when we read a story like this. Two things, I think, that to bear in mind, particularly here. One is that this is a story, part of the story, of David, who is the most significant individual in the entire Old Testament story. So this is a very important issue. And the, the, what is driving this story in the context is the question, when will David become king over all Israel? Already he's become king of Judah. We'd expected that when Saul was dead, that he would automatically become the king of all Israel, as Saul had been. But by five years in, and now seven and a half years in, to his reign, he is still not the king of all Israel. He's still the king of Judah. And we're asking the question, well, when will God keep his promise to David and give him all Israel as his kingdom? When will it happen? And how will it happen? How will God do this in the end? Five years in, civil war has started. Civil war is still going on when we get to chapter four here. How will God do this? Great thing. That's the first, question, the first thing. Second thing is, of course, that by extension, this story is part of Jesus' story. It's part of that messy human history, that messy family background from which the Messiah, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, emerges. Jesus comes into the world with baggage, the baggage of a family tree, just as you did. You may not know everything you want to know about your family tree. You may not know what it was that drove them from wherever they were when they crossed the ocean and came to this 
great continent. You may not want to know why they came here. Uh, you may want to live in the ignorance of, uh, of their roots and so on. I, I know that one part of my family came from landed gentry and my father used to tease my grandmother and my, my mother's side of the family that they'd come across their land and their wealth by being sheep steers. It was a, a pervidious lie, of course. That's not true, but my father insisted on it and, and it really annoyed my grandparents all the time. All the time. Every time he mentioned it. They never, they never learned that he was pulling their leg, but, but there you go. Maybe you've got something embarrassing in your past. I want to say to you this morning, so does Jesus. This is part of it. This is part of his past. Well, as we come to the story today, there are three points that I want to make. One is the fragility of the weak, the treachery of the strong, and the justice of the king. That seems to me to be what the story is about. Let's look at that and walk our way through the story. First of all, the fragility of the weak. There's a real cast of characters in this story, and you're going to forget all their names, so don't even try to remember. I'll give you permission right away not to do so. But a number of the characters in the story are strong men. Strong men. I mean, Saul, who has died, he was a very strong figure. Tall, well-built, well-constructed hunk of a man who everybody recognized would be a great, strong, natural leader for Israel. David has shown himself to be a great commander, a great leader as well, a military leader, and very adept at uh, being on the run for many, many years and avoiding getting into trouble. David is a strong man. And David's strong men serving them. Joab, who is David's right-hand man, is a strong character. Abner, who had been commander-in-chief of the Israelite army in the north, he is a great and a strong man. And all of these figures have been tugging away with kind of alpha males pulling at each other all the time in the story so far. And one of these alpha males, Abner, has appointed this son of Saul, Ishbosheth, to the throne of the eleven tribes to the north. That's really where we find ourselves in the story because there's this conflict. David is king of Judah in the south. Ishbosheth has been appointed by Abner to this throne in the north, the eleven tribes of Israel to the north. And there's been all kinds of other things going on. Uh, Abner kills Joab's brother. Joab kills Abner. Saul is dead. And now we're going to read of two more, of, of another killing by these two men mentioned here. And what the narrative is teaching us at the surface is this, that violence begets violence. One killing necessitates the other. So one man claims to have mercy killed Saul and David puts him to death. Uh, Abner inadvertently kills the brother of Joab, probably accident, but he kills him and so Joab has to kill Abner. And now we have these two men, the sons of Ramon or Rimon, who come and kill Ishbosheth, the king of Israel. Are you with me so far? No? Well, never mind. You'll catch up in a moment. So it's all about violence. It's all about these things. And you'll notice that in the story there are two men who aren't strong men by any manner of means. Both of them are related to Saul. There's a son of Saul, Ishbosheth, 
First verse mentions him. And then there's Mephibosheth, who is mentioned in verse 4, a grandson of Saul and a son of Jonathan. Jonathan being one of the strong men in the story. And these two men, in many ways, frame the, the, the first part of the chapter, their lives in verse 1 and verse 4. That, that's not simply a random pairing, and our being introduced to Mephibosheth is not random in the text, though it looks like that, because there's going to be more about him later on in the story, but is introduced here to emphasize the weakness of Saul's house at this point in the story. The house of Saul is weak. First of all, there's Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and he's weak personally. He's not a bad person. There's nothing said about him in the text that is evil, but he is rather insignificant and would be forgotten, I imagine, in the story if his name was not in the Bible. He's one of those people whose role throughout the whole story is passive. He's one of those people in life to whom things happen. They just happen to them. They never, they're not the people who make things happen. They're the people that things happen to. There are people like that. Maybe that's what you're like. In the story, this man, Mephibosheth, is, appears to be a bit of a patsy. That's a, an, an American word. I looked it up in Wikipedia. Uh, and uh, and in, this is what the official source says, uh, it's a person who's easily swindled, deceived, coerced, persuaded, a sucker, another American word, a person on whom to blame, uh, or the blame for things falls, a scapegoat, a fall guy, a person who is the object of a joke or ridicule or the like. And in that definition, you can see Ishbosheth. He's that kind of person. He had never looked for high office. He had never agitated for the throne. He had never sought a position of power or influence. He had found himself there. He'd been put there by Abner, the strong man, the kingmaker. And we know these two things about this man, Ishbosheth. We know on the one hand that he is completely Abner's creature. That without Abner, he would never have been in the position that he's in. Without Abner, his hold on power is fragile, to say the least. And the second thing we know about him is that he feared Abner. He didn't like Abner. But he could do nothing about Abner. There was nothing that he could do to remove Abner. Because without Abner, no Ishbosheth. No Ishbosheth. He did not have independent existence. He could not be taken seriously as a public figure apart from this greater man. And Abner, who made him king, then sets about trying to unmake him as king. There comes a day when Ishbosheth tries to question Abner about his behavior with a certain concubine, and Abner, in a fit of rage, tells Ishbosheth that just as he had made him king, so he could unmake him as king. Well, now Abner's dead. And we read in verse 1 when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. Literally in the Hebrew, his hands dropped. And he lost grip on power. He lost grip on power. You know, sometimes life seems unfair. In England, a long time ago, uh, there was a man called Oliver Cromwell, one of the greatest Englishmen that ever lived. He's known as England's chief of men. Uh, and they're short on great people, so 
they need all the people they can get. And it was his strength of will, his character and determination uh, that led him to stand up for the parliament that represented the people against a tyrannous king, King Charles I. And uh, it was Cromwell who had the strength to see uh, the matter through until ultimately, uh, by the court of the nation, Charles was found guilty of high treason uh, in, because he was bringing foreign armies in to try and defeat his own people and so on. He was committed high treason and eventually the king is put to death. Cromwell is a strong man. And then, inconveniently, Cromwell dies early. And his son is put in the position, Richard, Richard Cromwell. And he was a very good man. He was a very godly man. He was a strong Christian man. But he wasn't up to the job of running a country. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't exercise the strength of character that his father had. And within nine months, his protectorate collapses into the dust of history. And it was absolute disaster for England because the monarchy came back in again and you know the rest of the story. It was good for America because all the Puritans left there, came here and created a better world for, for everybody else. Now, you read the story of Ishbosheth and you read the story of Richard Cromwell and nobody's going to go home today saying, I really would like to be Ishbosheth. I mean, apart from the fact that it's hard to pronounce, you, you don't really want to go home thinking you want to be like this man. So there's Ishbosheth on the one hand, and he's weak personally. And then there's Mephibosheth, who's weak physically. Very sad story, five years of age. The news comes about Saul and Jonathan being killed. His nurse, anxious to protect the boy from the political fallout of the death of a monarch and the possibility of the Philistines coming and invading and taking him prisoner, runs to hide him, and in the process, the boy is dropped, and he is completely crippled by that fall. It's a tragic story. And for reasons like that, in those days, there's no way that he would be appointed ever king. And here are these two people. They represent, they represent a category of person in the Bible known as the humble poor. The humble poor are not necessarily financially poor or materially poor, but they are the people who have no power. They have no influence. They are not able to change things, either their own things or other things. They are at the mercy of circumstances. And I want to ask this morning, do you think God is only interested in the strong, natural leader types, the A-type personalities that are able to enforce their will on others? Are those the only kind of people that God is interested in? And I want to answer the question by saying that the reason these two men are mentioned in the Bible is that God takes note of these people that everyone else is walking all over to get their will done in the world. God notes their names. Their names are here in Scripture for posterity and for us today as a word to us to say that God is concerned for the humble poor. Maybe you feel a little bit like them. Maybe you, you're caught in the middle of somebody else's narrative. You think the story of life is really captured by my brother or my sister or my parents or my children even, and you're just a, a, a kind of walk-on character in the story that is really about them. Do you ever feel like that? 
You ever feel as you read the newspapers or watch the television that our lives are coincidental to these bigger stories of celebrities and stars that are making an impact in the world? What we do is we come to Scripture and we read of these two men in this story and we realize that in God's book there is a place for people like us. There's a place for people like us. God is not only interested in the rich and the famous and the bold and the strong and the movers and the shakers. He's interested in them, but he's also interested in people that lose their nerve, like Ishbosheth. And he's interested in people who are crippled, like Mephibosheth. And he's interested in people who found life to be unfair, like they did. And he wants us to know that they have a champion. They have a champion. You see, in this story, David is going to be the champion of those people. He will grieve for the loss of Ishbosheth's life. And he will act to vindicate his life and to bring justice to those who killed him. And later on in the story, he will act to preserve the life of Mephibosheth and to raise him up and to look after him and care for him. Both, he does both those things. Because in David, we're going to see something of the chesed, the steadfast love of God reflected in the life of David. There's a hint of mercy in the story. It's only a hint. But there's a hint of mercy in this story. It's a reminder that God is at work through his anointed one, keeping his eye on the falling sparrows, on the weak. Well, we move from the, from the weak to look at the treachery of the strong. I said that Abner is a strong man. His power lies behind the throne up north. When Abner dies, there's a crisis in the northern kingdom. We read in the text, all Israel was dismayed. They looked around themselves and they saw the possibility of the collapse of this northern enterprise. Here they were, they had more people, they had more tribes, they had greater facilities and they had greater influence. And yet here they are, they're on the verge of collapse. David is growing stronger, they're growing weaker. The whole direction of history seems to be moving in David's direction, and now it seems they're at his mercy. That's why Abner moved to appoint Ishbosheth king. But now Abner is dead. What's going to happen? And these two men that we read about, the sons uh, of Ramon, I think he's Italian, Ramon. The, the sons of Ramon, they, they work, that was just to see if you're still awake, and I'll apologize personally to each Italian person. Afterwards, I love you. Spaghetti. No, uh, uh, come on, attention here. So, so what happened is these two boys now take everything into their own hands. They're, they're well-trusted people, these men. They're described in different ways. They're described as captains of Saul's company. They may have been the secret service, detailed, personal bodyguard to the king, which would explain their ability to enter his private apartment with weapons, carrying weapons. Certainly they were involved in work below the, the radar, work for the state below the radar in raiding various communities outside of Israel. Without declaring war, they did it covertly, raiding these places all for the northern kingdom. Now we read that they came with a determination. They set out, that is, they came determined and about the heat of the day, they he specified, they even worked out the time that they would do this. It was the heat of the day. They came to the house 
of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And three verbs capture the action. They strike, they kill, they decapitate. They struck him, put him to death, beheaded him. Verse 7. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, the puppet of Abner, without his mentor, is three times dead, and his head is now a trophy in the hands of these wicked men. And without hesitating, they take the head and they go the 30 miles to David, carrying their proof of death, their proof of death, the death of the house of Saul. The evidence of their devotion to David and the house of David. And carrying in their hands the hope, the hope of a fat reward as a debt of gratitude. And when the sons of Ramon come into David's presence, they are proud, defiant, and expectant. Listen to what they say in verse 8. They said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. That's their condemnation of the man. He's a son of Saul. He's David's enemies. He's seeking David's life. And here's their theological rationale. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. And they don't realize, as they say that, they don't realize that they've missed everything. They've misunderstood the Lord. They've misunderstood David. They've misunderstood what revenge and vengeance is about. And what they thought would bring David joy brings him dismay. And what they thought would bring them honor will bring them death. Why is this? Here's the third point. Because of the justice of the king. The justice of the king. You see, David is commendable in this whole section for this, that he strives for justice. He has a vision of a kingdom that will be marked by freedom and justice for all. Those are good things to look for in any nation. David wants to see them in Israel. And also, David is anxious to inherit the kingdom as God's gift, in God's way, at God's time. He doesn't want to run ahead of this. There are no shortcuts that David wants to take to receiving the kingdom. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that over and over again, David has been constantly, continually being offered shortcuts to having all Israel as his kingdom. And on almost every occasion, he has been handed on a plate a theological rationale for doing so. So, when... Saul finds himself in a cave and David's men are hiding in the cave. His men say to David, here's your chance. The Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. This is what you've been waiting for. This is what you've been looking for. The Lord's delivered him. Providence. The providence of God. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. Seize the day, David, and kill him. David says no. And when David sneaks into Saul's camp, sneaks right through all the enemy guards, sneaks right up to where Saul is sleeping and takes his spear that's been thrust into the ground by his head and his bottle of water, his perrier, and, and he's going to take them away with him. The man who's with him says, David, this is your chance. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. One thrust, one thrust, and he'll be dead. 
and I'll do it for you. David says, no. This is the Lord's anointing. And when a man comes fresh from the battlefield reporting the death of Saul and tells David a lie, though David doesn't know it's a lie at the time, and says that Saul was dying and asked him to do some mercy killing, and he had done the deed to relieve Saul from his agonies. David had brought justice to that man. Why? Because he would never lift his hand against the Lord and against his anointed. And now these two thugs come along this time. They're saying that they've cleared away all the significant threats. The Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day on Saul and on his offspring. This is a seductive reading of providence. Here is David making headway in the battle with Saul's house. The north has lost its strongman Abner. Now its titular head has been removed from office. One by one the roadblocks are being removed. Everything seems to be going in the right direction. And they're saying to David, now seize the moment. Take the crown. This is the moment that God has delivered right into your lap. Take it. Now there are times, you see, when providence, it seems, appears to present you with a cast-iron guarantee of getting something you want for all the right reasons. David knew that the Lord had promised him the kingdom. David knew that the Lord had given him this great gift by way of promise in the past. But if he took it by force, if he claimed it by violence, if he hurt the innocent as collateral damage in the process, that would be inconsistent with the values of the kingdom that God was giving to him. It would be wrong. You see, for these men... Theology for them was a basis for self-congratulation, self-assertion, self-fulfillment. They were using theology. They weren't using it as a ground for worship. And you know that in some churches, theology is used as an excuse for harshness and bitterness of people in their dealings with other people. Or theology is used as a way of boxing people into a corner or of beating people around the head so that they come to agree with, with them. That's why I was so anxious in the Living Church segment earlier as we talked about this building to distance myself from it in terms of a spiritual principle. I, I can't bring you a verse and tell you this is the Lord's will for you. I could try to tell you that. I could say I had a dream last night and the Lord said to me, Liam, you could tell them today that I'm saying to them they should buy this building. What would, what would that be? Well, A, it would be a lie, but B, it would be manipulation. And C, it would be completely in contradiction of everything else we stand for. Christ rules the church by His Word. We know what He says in His Word, but there are things that He doesn't say in His Word that are our opinion. And some people use theology to support their opinion, and in doing so, they bully other people. That happens all the time. They take a strong stand on secondary matter. Sometimes they use theology to defend bad behavior. Well, how does David respond? Do you notice David responds like this? Look at what it says. David answered these men, and you have a whole rig rigmarole. Their names, their father, 
where the father came from and you think this is redundant we've already had this earlier in the passage it's not redundant what it's doing is telling you this is now a legal formula we're being told the names of the people who are now on the charge sheet they've gone simply from being characters in the story to being criminals in the dark here they are and they're being reintroduced to us David is putting a distance between himself and them and they have talked theology he will talk theology They have taken the Lord's name in vain. They've taken the name Yahweh in vain. David now will take the Lord's name properly. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, David says. The Lord lives. These men had been using the Lord's name as an expedient. Jesus uses the Lord's name because he exists. David knows that he's standing in the presence of the living God. It was said of some divinity students, theology students at Edinburgh University. Those men know all there is to know about God, except that he is listening to them. David knows God is hearing as the Lord lives. And what has the Lord done? The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I haven't got by simply on my wits or my wisdom or my natural instincts, David is saying. I'm alive today because God in his goodness, in spite of everything that was against me, in spite of 15 plus years of being on the run and being hounded by the enemies, my enemies, I'm standing here today because the Lord lives and the Lord has delivered me, redeemed me from my enemies. I have proved him. I don't need to prove anything of myself. No, because I proved him. And then he tells them a story. It's not looking good for these two guys as they stand before David. He tells them a story. You know, somebody came with good news to me. They brought the good news that Saul was dead. They thought I'd be happy to hear the good news that Saul, the Lord's anointed, and his son Jonathan were dead. But I wasn't happy to hear that news. That man claimed to have killed Saul. And he suffered the judicial penalty of assaulting the body of the Lord's anointed. He died. By this time, these two guys are now shaking in their shoes. So David pronounces his sentence. You have killed an innocent man. I want you to hear that the language that David uses here. It's very strong language. The language of innocent. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand? David is acting as the judge. And he clears the kingdom. Three verbs. Report their end. Killed, cut off, hanged. I want to draw three lessons from the story today. The first one is about the innocence of David, that through all these deaths, David is not implicated in any one of them. Through all the goings and the shenanigans back and forth that have been taking place in the story, David is innocent. He doesn't appreciate news of any of these deaths. He does not celebrate any of these deaths. The death of Saul, the death of Ishbosheth, are avenged by David. Joab kills Abner, to whom David has given the rights of safe 
passage and David mourns and grieves the death of Abner, this great commander-in-chief of the Israelite army. David is innocent in the story. I want you to see the justice of David. You see, that's what's on David's mind. You killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. This was the law of the land. David is saying, this kingdom that I'm going to set up is going to be a kingdom that is ruled by law. Law is king. The law will reign in this kingdom. Men and women will live by the rule of law, not lawlessness. Not men and women taking into their own hands to do vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God has put in place vehicles for human retribution, and that is the state. David is speaking here as the ruler of the state, as the king of Judah here. And he takes that official role seriously. God says, vengeance is mine. Sometimes he delegates that vengeance to the state to punish evildoers. And David is punishing evildoers in that way. Now you say, what has justice to do with the gospel? Justice has everything to do with the gospel. You don't believe in the justice of God, you can't believe the gospel. The good news is that God is just. And the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. When the prophets looked forward to the Messiah's coming, they hoped that when the Messiah came, he would do justice in the world. And he did. He did. There was a great judgment. And on the cross, God demonstrated his own justice by justly taking our sin on himself in the person of his Son. And in the cross, what we have is this, the justification of God, that God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. God is just. He deals with sin. He does not dismiss it. He does not say it doesn't matter, that it is important, that what you've gone through in your life that is bad, that that kind of thing really doesn't add up in my book and I'm not going to consider it anymore and it's gone and done with and get over it. He doesn't say that to you. He deals with sin. I want to say this, that it is very important not only that the innocent, spotless Lamb of God dealt with sin justly on the cross, it is important that the Lamb of God now enthroned in heaven is coming back again to deal justly with the world. That's important to everybody in this room. The child who is to be born, as Isaiah said, and who is to be given the government on his shoulder, the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it, is going to rule it with justice and righteousness, says Isaiah. When Isaiah is talking about the fact that this Messiah will come, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. You need to know that there's going to be a day of justice. There's going to be a day of justice in which the world in its rebellion and sin against God is going to be put right. That day is coming. One day David's son and Lord will institute Hebron justice throughout the whole earth for the good of men and for the glory of God. The justice of David points us to the justice of Jesus. Lastly, the patience of David. You see, here he is at the very verge of gaining the whole kingdom. And even at this point, he will not run ahead of God. For years he's waited. For years it's been denied him. 
For years he's been despised and rejected, outlawed and hunted down. And he has not grasped for power and glory. He has not tried to insinuate himself in positions of influence and power. He has waited and waited and waited because the true Davidic king knows his place and waits for God. And no one did that better than Jesus did it. He was by very nature God. Yet he did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. and Being found in fashion of man and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here you find David's patience tested over and over again. Jesus' patience is tested. Satan comes and says, bow down and you have the kingdom now. The masses of people on one occasion try to make him a king. And he glides through the crowd and leaves them. On the cross, come down and we'll worship you. He refuses to take the easy option. Look at the patience of of, of David and you're pointed to the patience of Jesus. A better David, a truly perfect one, a sinless sufferer who dies as the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The true king who looks with compassion on the weak, on the marginalized, on the forgotten, and brings them in to his, under the wings of his steadfast love and sovereign purpose. This is our king, Jesus. We who follow him, we who are filled with the spirit of Jesus, will want to walk with humility and wait the Lord's timing and seek to deal justly with those who come across our path. And to remember those who are weak. To reach out to them with the good news of their Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would please take your word. and Taking this word, write it in our hearts and help us to see beyond it to the one to whom it points ultimately. Our greater David, our great King Jesus. Thank you for his justice. Thank you that this coming a day when the inequities of life will be resolved. Tables will be turned, and you will be glorified. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen.
Now may the great God of glory give you grace and peace in believing, and guard and guide you through this, your brief uncertain life and pilgrimage, and deliver you safely to glory, to see the face of him whom you love. God be with you. Now let's go and serve the world as those who know and love our Savior Jesus.